You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, and lead pastor here at City Church. We're really glad to gather here this morning. Welcome back, college students to Tallahassee. Uh, old people, aren't you glad they're back? Aren't you glad? That's everybody else. That's everybody else. Uh, we are a multi-generational church that loves to see the next generation. Uh, the narrative is that young people don't go to church anymore. Are there any, co- any college students here this morning? A few? All right, okay. So we're just going to keep busting the narrative. That's the goal uh, because we believe this is such a formative time of your life and the local church is critical uh, just for your growth during this time. There is not more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. You don't have to go around God for all the things you're looking for in your life. You can go right to him for all those things, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, joy, happiness, all those things can be found in the Lord. Uh, so we're thankful God brought you to Tallahassee. If you're a returning student or if uh, you're a freshman just getting started, we'd love for you to connect in our church and our Salt Company College Ministry. It's a great time to be a college student at Florida State, and this church is a big, huge part of that. Also, our fall kickoff for city groups is tonight at 5 o'clock. If you're already in a group, if you just want to check it out, if you're not sure, if you're somewhere in the middle or just want dinner and to meet people, come tonight at 5 o'clock. It's going to be a great time together. I'm going to pray for us, and if you're new here and just got to Tallahassee, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, we started back in chapter 1, verse one back in January. We love going through books of the Bible here, not exclusively, but the majority of what we do is preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we'll be at the end of Acts 17 this week, our fourth week in chapter 17, uh, concluding that chapter before we head to 18 next week where Paul goes to Corinth. So we'll catch you up quick. I'm going to pray for us and then we will dive in. Our Father, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful that there is one gospel. There's one true gospel and it's understood in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We are so grateful that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let us cling to that truth and to the love of God understood in Christ this morning, the one who rose from the grave. We pray for all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today. We know we're not the only ones that are gathering. Leave you with every pastor and every pulpit in the city and that college students will fill every church in our community. That's what we ask. We ask you to keep the enemy out of this place. Lord, and we ask you to keep just the devil away from all the plans happening in our college ministry and our church this morning, that we'll be found faithful, that we'll be able to proclaim your love to as many people who will hear it. Also, for those in our church family this morning who maybe are hurting, uh, who are going through loss or difficulty or pain, or maybe it's anxiety or depression, whatever it could be, Lord, we ask that you be with them. They know that you are near, that you're not a God who's far away. You're not a God who's distant. You're a God who is with us. And I just ask that we'll all believe that today. Help us to see you, help us to see Jesus. We ask as you speak through me this morning, in the name of Christ, amen. So Paul is arriving in Athens, that's Acts chapter 17, and when Paul gets to Athens, he's going there to preach the good news of the gospel, other Christians are joining them, a city with idols everywhere. Historians say there were about 10,000 people in the city of Athens at the time of Acts chapter 17, and there were 30,000 gods, 10,000 people and 30,000 gods. There were temples, there were shrines, there were festivals for these gods. They were all idols, they were all false gods. They were gods of Greek mythology. So Zeus had a temple and Hermes had a temple. All these gods everywhere. So here is Paul who's been saved by Jesus Christ, a guy who used to persecute Christians, who God has called to go into all the world and preach the good news of God's love understood through Jesus. And he shows up in Athens. And what does he see? He doesn't see secularism. He doesn't see progressivism. He sees worship. He sees idolatry. He sees false gods everywhere. When you go to FSU, if you're a new freshman, the temptation is to think that you're stepping on a campus full of secularism, that you're stepping on a campus full of some sort of radical progressivism. 
And the reality is that's not true. You're stepping on a campus full of worship, where people are worshiping idols they don't even know are idols all around them all the time. And that's the same when you go to work on Monday morning. That's the same in your neighborhood. That's the same when you go to high school, whatever it could be. It's not secular versus spiritual. Everyone is worshiping something. It's whom or what is the object of our worship. So we're told this is a review in verse 16. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens and the other believers to join him, he was deeply distressed. It bothered him. It pained him. It even outraged him when he saw the city was full of idols. Because he knows those idols are never going to love them back. He knows those idols aren't actually gods, yet the people are giving their lives to them, giving their devotion to them, being deceived by them. So what's his reaction? It wasn't judgmentalism. It wasn't condemnation. He was distressed. Something happened in his heart when he walked into the city and saw false worship of false gods everywhere. The people of Athens even had one called the altar to an unknown god. Just in case we missed any gods in our 30,000, here's an altar to an unknown one. Just in case. So he's reasoning with them. We talked about it last week. He's even debating with them. He's showing them that Jesus really rose from the grave. Like that's his message, that Christ has resurrected, that other gods are not gods. There's one true God. And he says this to them in verse 23. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, like you yourselves claim it's an unknown God, this I proclaim to you. As in a truth, I'm going to tell you. Our God is not unknown. He has made himself known to us. He wants us to know who he is. He's not left us to wonder and to speculate if there's a God. He has showed us who he is through what's called natural revelation, which is like if you go to the mountains or go to the beach, maybe you see a baby born, and you go, wow, there must be a God. That's not enough knowledge. That points us to something, but thankfully God gave us what's called special revelation. He gave us the scriptures to show us exactly who he is. And the way we're told we ultimately understand him is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't need altars to an unknown God because our God is known. He has made himself known to us. So today's text is at the end of Luke, the author of Acts, of the recorded encounter between Paul and the people of Athens. And it shows us the conclusion of that interaction, of that debate, of that time together, and the aftermath of what happens after Paul's speech in Athens. And we're told this in verse 30. This is Paul speaking. Keep in mind, this is Paul, the one who used to persecute Christians, and now has been radically transformed by the grace of God. His life has been radically turned upside down and changed, showing us that God can and will save anyone. No one is too far from God's grace. Here's one who used to try to stop the church from going forward. Now he's proclaiming the name of Jesus in the most cosmopolitan, most philosophical, trendy city around Athens. He says, therefore as in based on everything I just told you about Jesus Christ being risen from the grave, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people, it's for all people, everywhere, no one's exempt, in other words, to repent. Why? Because he has set a day. He's like, be not mistaken. I love you enough to tell you the truth, Paul's saying. He has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness, that that is the standard, righteousness, and not just random righteousness, righteousness by the man he has appointed, meaning Jesus Christ, that God's standard for righteousness and his standard for judgment is the perfect life of Jesus. So here's where we get kind of off track. Most people would say they're good people. 
And most folks believe that good people go to heaven when they die. That's kind of the, that's kind of the common belief. Any funeral I go to, you know, we're told that Uncle Billy's in a better place, you know, and that we're just so glad that Uncle Bob's fishing at the big bass lake in the sky, and you know, all, all that we're so glad that Grandma and Grandpa are reunited. She missed him so much. You know, Ernie's golfing the 18 holes and fishing the bass lake, and you know, we're just told all those kind of things about heaven. Usually, people just believe that they're good people, and that's the basis for why they are with God. Now, they're right about part of that. They're usually right about themselves being good people by the standards of this world. We can just compare ourselves to kind of suburban morality in Tallahassee or what it means to be a good person on campus. We can always feel pretty good about ourselves and we can claim that we're good people. But here he says that's not how God judges us. God's standard is not how we measure up to somebody else. God's standard is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Has anyone in this room ever kept the perfect standard of righteousness? I know I haven't. I probably haven't this morning already. It's football season. I'm already thinking like sinful thoughts about gators. I mean, all kinds of things, right? I mean, like, it's already happened this morning. But only one can claim that, that lived perfect righteousness, and his name is Jesus Christ. So God, rather than punishing us as our sins deserve for our rebellion against him, Jesus died in our place, and we're told that his righteousness was imputed. It was passed on. We received it. It was given to us. So now we stand as a Christian before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not one of ourselves. Do not trust in yourselves that you are righteous. Your good deeds don't cancel out your bad deeds. Getting a Diet Coke does not cancel out your double cheeseburger at Whataburger. It doesn't work that way. We must appeal to a righteousness that is not our own. That righteousness is freely given to us in Christ. He says, be not mistaken. God will judge people. He will judge our lives, and the standard is Jesus. So either you stand before him depending on yourself that you are good, or you stand before him appealing to the goodness of Jesus on your behalf. There is one gospel, and his name is Jesus Christ. He has provided proof as in he's ended the discussion of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The fact that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive confirms that he is God and it also means the other 30,000 gods in Athens are not God. If there is no resurrection, add him to the equation. Let him be another God among many, another option. Just kind of tag him onto your life, make him a hobby, a philosophical teacher, a moral compass, a divine Santa Claus, a big guy upstairs. Make him all of those things. But if Easter's true, that lily dress you bought for Easter Sunday last year is worth it. If the seersucker suit endured the heat, I forgot to pray that God would make it colder in Tallahassee. I apologize for that. We'll do that later. <laughs> then it's all tied to who he is. And if he hasn't risen from the grave, Paul himself says Christians should be pitied. So we're giving our lives something that's fake, that's false. We're going all in on someone who claimed to be the Messiah but isn't. For if he is the Messiah, we should say, here is my life. He's given them a clear warning about their idolatry in Athens. He was distressed, so he spoke. Jesus' resurrection was proof for a coming resurrection for all of God's people. Because he rose from the grave, we believe now that we will too. It confirms that. His resurrection is the basis for our faith. So when we read a text like this, he's telling these people we should be faced with the reality of God's kindness, God's love, that we couldn't measure up, so he measured up for us. That he made a demand on us that we couldn't meet, so he met the demand for us in the life of Jesus. Our God has been kind to us. He has been good to us. 
He has been loving to us. And out of the exact same stroke of a pen, he also points us to the certainty of his judgment. The certainty of his judgment. The amazing kindness of God and the certainty of his judgment are in perfect harmony together. You might go, wow, this is my first Sunday in Tallahassee. I came to this church and you're talking about the judgment of God. Wow. Next church, please. Well, I want to be clear about something. A church that refuses to ever talk about the judgment of God is a church that minimizes the love of God. Because the way we understand God's amazing, incredible, intense, indescribable, unfathomable love for us, it's that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we should be punished for our sins, for our rebellion against God, but we're not Because Jesus, who never rebelled, stepped in our place as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we are forgiven. We are made right. We are new creations. We are adopted into God's family. The benefits are unbelievable of life with God. John Piper wrote this. Earlier I read read from Acts about how in the past he overlooked times of ignorance. And that might seem kind of confusing. It probably should be on the surface. We don't really understand what's happening here. Uh, So there's some background on that, just so we're clear and not leaving anybody wondering. John Piper wrote this on this text. In other words, the times of ignorance God overlooked and the sense that he allowed them to walk in their own ignorant ways. He did not come forth in immediate judgment nor did he come forth with the revelation of the mystery of Christ. So the name of Jesus had not been fully known yet. Hints of him, yes, but he hasn't, he hasn't been born in the manger in Bethlehem yet. He let the nations go their own way. The times of ignorance were part of God's sovereign plan for world history. Not that God instilled ignorance into innocent people, Piper writes, that he withheld revelation from guilty people. And he did so according to the dictates of infinite wisdom. Before the coming of Christ, people were saved by trusting in the mercy of God. They looked to his mighty deeds like the Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt, when he parted the Red Sea. They looked to the blood sacrifices that had their sins atoned for, covered for a little while, and they looked to the promises of a redeemer, one who was promised who was going to come and ultimately liberate people from their sins. But they did not know Jesus Christ, and they did not know how the nations would be saved. And how they would be related to the Jews and the kingdom of God, how he would bring the Gentiles into faith, as we've covered in Acts the past several months. He says, but now, the mystery is revealed. The times of ignorance are over. Jesus Christ has come. And the revelation of the mystery is that Gentiles are full and fellow heirs with Jews. And all this is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has come to earth to accomplish the mission he was sent to, no one anymore has any excuse. That's why we must get the gospel out. That's why we're a church that gives large sums of money to missions. That's not to brag, that's to show our priorities. Because we have to get the good news of the gospel since the times of ignorance are over to the ends of the earth. That's why we have a college ministry. That's why we have a middle school and high school ministry. It's why we have a children's ministry. It's why we have city groups. It's why we gather on Sunday mornings to make disciples and help you grow in your faith. Yes, absolutely. But also because God has called us all to be missionaries to take his good news to all those who need to hear it. And what is the call here? He proclaims Christ. He says the times of ignorance are over. That God's plan and mystery has now been revealed. And what does he call them to do, these people of Athens? These sophisticated people of 30,000 gods? Doesn't sound very sophisticated, but they thought they were. He calls them to repent. 
to turn away from their worship of false gods and turn to the one true God. What is repentance? It sounds like a hellfire and brimstone word. It's not. It's actually a grace-fueled word. It's pulling a 180 in terms of your entire life. Before you met Jesus, you were just living for yourself, whether you'll realize it or admit it or not. I was living just for me. I was functioning as if I was my own God. Living for the world, living in darkness, saying, God, no thanks, I'm on this path. God, no thanks, I don't want you, I want your stuff instead. I don't want to worship you, I want to worship me. I don't care about what you think, I care about what I think. And then God reveals himself to us through the good news of the gospel, and what happens in our conversion? A complete turnaround. That God changes the direction of our lives in our repentance. So instead of now me thinking that I'm God, even though I never admit that, but functioning as if that's so, now I agree that he is the one true God. He calls us to repent. It includes how you think. You repent of how you live. Because before you believe the gospel, when I say you, I mean me as well. I never preach a sermon that I'm not dealing with myself. They say if you, never, if you preach from your weaknesses, you'll never run out of materials. So that's my strategy. Before you believe the gospel, before I believe the good news, you did what was right in your own eyes. Like you were the judge of you. It's like when you're a kid and you tell your mom, you're not the boss of me, right? And then like an hour later, you're saying, can I have a snack? It's like, who's the boss of who? We are basically saying, God, you're not the boss of me. And not just the boss. I don't want to know you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I want to do what's right in my own eyes. But the reality is you can't follow Jesus without repentance, a gospel presentation doesn't call us to repentance, to turn from who we used to be, and now turn to the new life is an incomplete gospel. In baptism, we celebrate that. It's a symbolism. Baptism doesn't save us from our sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. But what baptism does is it shows us an outworking, the story of the good news of the gospel, that when you go into the water, it's symbolizing an old way of life. You're being buried with Christ. When you come out of the water, you're raised to walk in the new life that God has given you, as in you've repented, and you're showing the whole world that Jesus is Lord, and that no other gods are. Jesus said this in his early ministry in Mark chapter 1, that he went to Galilee, we're told. He was proclaiming the good news of God, is how Mark explains it, and says the time is fulfilled, as in the mystery is no longer. It is here. And the kingdom of God has come near. Like, it's now. It's not to be waited for or anticipated. It's now. So because I have come, and because what I'm about to do for you, what's the response he calls them to? Repent and believe the good news. Turn from this world, turn to your former ways, turn from your ignorance, turn from your denial, turn from your stubbornness, and turn to Christ. You were going in one direction in life, and then you met Jesus, and you turned around and went the other way, the literal opposite direction. Repentance proclaims that God is God and I am not which is easy to say, it's hard to swallow sometimes. Repentance proclaims that he is right and I was wrong. It happens at conversion, there's a general repentance, but it also becomes a way of life for the Christian. Martin Luther, the great church reformer, said that all of life is, is repentance for the Christian. And it's not a begrudging kind of thing, even though there are times where it takes some discipline, we're going, okay God, I get it. You know, that kind of stuff does happen. But repentance brings life. It brings life. I mean, who out here wants life? How many people are looking for life? Like, God, give me life in this chaotic world, 
in this depressing world, in this dead world. Lord, give me life. And in Acts chapter 11, we see this. So then, God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. That we go from an old life to a new life by the grace of God. And he links it to his goodness. He makes a contrast here in Romans. Same author, Paul, who's speaking in Athens. He says this, or do you not, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Are you continuing to run away from and rebel against the love of God and trying to find love in other places? He's saying, why? Why do you despise his kindness? That's what you're actually doing functionally and, and his patience with us. He says, you're not recognizing that God's kindness, it's intended to do something in our lives. To lead us away from ourselves and to lead us to him. And how does that happen? It happens through repentance. Then he gives a contrast and says, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, because you're rejecting God, he is storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Why would you choose that instead of responding to the kindness of God that's been revealed to you in Jesus Christ? It's amazing that when God gives us a stern warning, he always gives us a solution and gives us a better plan. And what's the better plan? What's the better option? He is the better plan, and he is the better option. So we see in verse 32 that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, that was his message. Not clean up, not be more like me, not get more religious, but Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, as in he really is the Messiah. Some began to ridicule him. But others, there was some hope, said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. We're told that Paul left their presence. Now, there were other believers who were left behind who were going to answer their questions, who were going to show them the ways of the scriptures, the way of Christ. Paul had other cities to get to, so he didn't leave them high and dry. But at the same time, Paul's probably going, I just proclaim to you that the one who was dead is now resurrected. Are you going to accept him or are you going to reject him? Like, which one are you going to choose? So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him. And how do you join the faith? They believed. And by believing, we can also conclude they repented because that was tied to his message. Believe the good news of the gospel, and because of that, you believe in God's kindness, and it leads you to repent of your sins. Including, he gave some names, Dionysius, the Arapagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see here at the end the conclusion of this famous speech in Acts 17 where he proclaims the one true God compared to the 30,000 gods around him. He's in a place where they would basically take applications for gods, where you would come into the Areopagus and you would say, hey, here is my God that I worship. They go, okay, let's check it out. Is it legit? Does it count? Okay, we like this God. Now we have 30,000 and one. And we're going to build a temple to him and have a festival for him and have a shrine for this God. So they think Paul's coming to kind of give another God and the options of many. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. There is one true God. And he has revealed himself ultimately through Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. We don't have to try to work to him. We failed at that. He has come to us. He's not far away. He is near. And now he's calling you to turn away from the worship of all these false gods and to turn to him. And we see the first group that was closed, number one, and condescending. Not just they believed, not they just rejected, some began to ridicule them. I'm not trying to scare you, but if you're a new college student, there's going to be times on campus, times in the classroom, times in the dorm, where you're going to be ridiculed for your faith. Not all the time, 
but there's going to be times you're going to be mocked and ridiculed for your faith. And here's the good news for us. That's never fun. I don't want to be ridiculed for my faith, but it's reality, and we're told it's not new. In Jeremiah, we're told what happened about these people that ridicule us and that condemn and that are closed. They made their faces harder than rock, and they refused to return. They were stubborn. They resisted God. They were stone-cold stubborn about it. Here's what Jesus said about those who ridicule. He said, blessed are you when people hate you. It's like, really? Blessed? When they exclude you. That happens a lot for Christians. You're going to get excluded from things. It's part of the reality of being a believer that's actually following Jesus. There's going to be times where you feel left out. They're going to insult you. Jesus said, and slander your name as evil, not because you were a jerk. Notice it doesn't say that. Not because your attitude towards them was one of condemnation. He says, no, because of the Son of Man, because of Jesus, because of who you're tied to, because of who you're associated with. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I only have like maybe two good leaps a year in me. I don't want to do it for that. And here Jesus is saying, rejoice, leap. Take the, picture for, take the picture for Instagram and all the girls jump in the air, you know, kind of thing. Why would I do that? It sounds just so foolish. He says, take note. Here's why. As in listen up when he says take note. Your reward is great in heaven. It means you're associated with me. It's a sign that you are walking with me when the world takes note. And also shows you this world is temporary. We don't look for it. You know, we're not looking to be excluded. We're not trying to find ways to be insulted. We're not trying to find ways to get us slandered. We're simply trying to follow Jesus, and that's going to happen when you believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Then he says also, this is not new. It's important for us to know sometimes that we're not the first Christians to go through things. This is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. The believers for generations have been ridiculed because they believed in the one true God. And it was always the nations that worshiped multiple, multiple, multiple gods who were coming after them. Again, keep in mind, these are not secular people in Athens. Secular people do not exist. Everyone is a worshiper of something. It's usually themselves, their minds. Today it's their politics. Oftentimes their appearance how they're viewed, their status, what others think of them. And as a result, they hate Christianity. They hate Christianity. 30,000 other gods who they are fine with. 30,000. 30,000 other gods. Think like student section at Doe Campbell Stadium. I don't know if you get that many, but think, think about that. Think total attendance at a Miami home game, okay? Think that. 30,000 gods. But Paul comes in, and he says, Jesus has risen from the grave, and they ridicule him. You notice that the closed and curious never seem to get bent out of shape about Islam? Did you ever notice that? Just culture at large? They don't get bent out of shape bad. They just kind of let them do their thing. I'm talking about just like mainstream, regular Muslim faith. 
Do you ever notice that the clothes and condemned never freak out about Jehovah's Witnesses besides being annoyed they knocked on their door or something like that? You ever notice that? You ever hear a closed person towards the gospel get mad about Buddhism or Hinduism? You ever hear them get mad about progressive mainline Protestantism? No. They're not saying anything. Yet here's Paul, and here's you, proclaiming that Jesus rose from the grave and they ridicule him. What's the difference? It means if Jesus really is God, the other 30,000 gods are not gods. That has to be the conclusion. It means that everything in Athens is going to change. It means repentance. Not just religious duty and routines. It means repentance. Turning from what I used to worship and now worship the one true God once and for all at my salvation and my conversion, but then every single day believing that God's kindness is better than anything these false gods have to offer because these false gods never love me back and God actually loved me first, the book of 1 John says. It has consequences, in other words, but it's good consequences if we believe in the kindness and goodness of God. And the old way of life is not the way of life anymore. That repentance now leads to life. It means things have to change and people oftentimes don't want to come to that grips. The Christian message is actually threatening. It is, because it changes things. If Jesus is God, 30,000 gods are not God. The second thing is the curious. There's two parts to that. They said some wanted to know more, they had questions. That's a great thing. Like what an opportunity. They said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. They likely disagreed on a few things, but they wanted to know more. But be not mistaken, it's by the resurrection that God has given assurance to people that Jesus really is the Messiah, he really is the Christ, that he really is the one who judges the living and the dead. So in curiosity, we should encourage that, we should be thankful people have questions and we should make ourselves available to be in their lives. There were other Christians who were gonna step in here in Athens and help them. We also have to ask another question, though, that's fair. As we're getting questions answered, what's keeping you from acting on your openness and curiosity? Is it just you have so many unanswered questions? Okay, awesome, we'll work through those. But I've never met someone who became a Christian and adult because all their questions got answered. That doesn't mean we don't try to answer them. I've never met that person before who was like, you know, I'm not a Christian because, you know, tropical storms and hurricanes happen. And then he gave him a book called Why Tropical Storms and Hurricanes Happen. Like, great, I'm in, sign me up, let's get baptized. I've never met that person before. People become Christians because it gets personal. They become aware of their sin and their need before a holy God, and they believe in the resurrection of Christ as their only hope of salvation. They become Christians because the love of God becomes real compared to the things of this world. But what's keeping you from the next step? from open, curious, deciding to go to church, all those things are awesome things. But is it fear? Is it fear that the 30,000 other gods in your heart and in your mind are gonna have to come down and what that actually means for your life, the relationship you're in, your habits, your allegiances? Is it just change in general? That word repentance makes you go, whoa, I'm a good person on my own, like I don't know what I'm gonna repent of, it's not like I'm 
Now, I mean, I'm not perfect who is, but remember, other people are not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And if you don't measure up to him, which none of us do, you better not stand before God based on your own merit and your own righteousness. You better stand before God appealing the righteousness of Jesus that's been freely given to you through the cross and resurrection. And then we have the convinced. Doesn't mean you don't question sometimes. Doesn't mean you don't have doubts. We're human beings. But the convinced that Easter actually is real. That Christmas wasn't a hoax. That Jesus is alive right now. The tomb is empty. The resurrection of Christ demands a verdict. He can't have sort of rose from the grave. Either he rose from the grave or he didn't. Either return the ham on Easter or eat it. I mean, like, there's, there's no middle. Like, do the egg hunt or don't. Like, either he rose from the grave or it's the biggest sham in the history of the world. And Paul acknowledges that in 1 Corinthians. I mentioned it earlier. If there's no resurrection of the dead, we're to be pitied. It's all, it's, it's, it's all folklore. It's legend. Oh, but if he has, and there's 500 witnesses who say he has, and Paul's like, I've met him myself. He's alive. He's alive. But the people who are convinced, we must carry the good news. That's our responsibility now. Why? Because the times of ignorance are over. That Jesus Christ is the object of saving faith. He is the object, that he is the way, the truth, the life. That God has met our greatest need, which is to be reconciled to him, that we couldn't meet ourselves through Jesus. John Piper says this, the call to repent goes out to all the world now, which means the call to missions goes out to all the church. That every Christian is a missionary in the context that God has given you. I'd love to see some of you college students in four years be sent overseas full time, maybe that'll happen. It's happened here before. Who knows what God's going to do in your life? Who knows? But the call is to repent and believe the good news. To go, we were going this way. Now we're going towards Christ, the one who actually first came for us. Let's celebrate the kindness of God together by saying, Jesus, here's my life every single day. Let's pray together. And uh, during our prayer time, uh, usually I just say a prayer at the end, but I wanted to kind of guide you for a second through just some silent prayers to pray just in your heart and mind where you're sitting. And if you're new to church and going, oh my gosh, this is weird. No, it's not. Christians talk to God. That's what we do. So when you come to church, that's what happens. Uh, and so just maybe you can get a chance to just understand what prayer is like, which is a great thing. Um, I would just ask you where you are right now to pray for somebody in your life that you know who's closed who's closed to the gospel. Maybe they're not condescending, maybe they're just closed. Actually, just right where you're sitting right now silently to pray for that person right now. Just ask God to, to soften their hearts, to open their mind, open their eyes to see that they, God will lead them in his kindness to repentance. Pray for that person by name in your heart and mind right now. Now, pray for the person in your life who's curious, who's open. Maybe that God would bring you someone who's curious and open, and that God would use you. That God would use you. Just by telling your own story, by just loving somebody, by being available to them. Inviting them to church, that they'll say yes to an invitation, whatever it could be. For the curious. Mention them by name. Lift them up to the Lord. And now pray for the convinced. Pray for yourself. Pray for your church family. Pray for others that we will grow in our faith. 
we'll be unashamed of the gospel, that God will use our church, we'll use other churches in our community to reach people with the love of God understood in Jesus Christ. Pray for the convinced. They won't waver, but they'll be bold. Pray for your friends, your family that know the Lord. You're not too old, you're not too young to be on mission for God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do lift up the church to you and ask that we will grow in our faith, that we'll love the things that you love, that we'll repent of the things that you've called us away from, that we'll see our tendency to worship other things besides you and we'll just be redirected over and over again. And for our city that's full of worshipers, just like Athens, I thank you you've put us here in this great place to live, in a great place to go to college. And I ask that you allow us to be intentional and that we are distressed enough by the idols that we want to cry out and pray to you and ask you to move in our community and to move in the lives of our friends and our family who don't know you. So I ask you to use our church, use the believers in this city outside of our church to see change happen here in Tallahassee and beyond. Lord, I ask that some of this new class of college students, some of them will go full-time into missions. I ask that will be their reality in four years, that we will send them from this church to the world, and that they'll see all of them a mission trip every day in front of them on campus at Florida State, that we'll see a mission field at work in our neighborhood and our families, that we'll take seriously the things you take seriously because we believe that you are good, that you are kind, that you are gracious, and that you are the one true God, and that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Give us confidence, give us hope. And it's in his great name we pray, amen.